welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in. Really happy to have returning listeners coming back to the show. Very gratified to hear from some listeners getting positive feedback. Uh, really do appreciate that. New listeners, welcome. Very happy you found the show. Hopefully you find it stimulating, illuminating, and various other adjectives that are probably unwarranted. Uh, I hope that people are finding the show to be something that spurs action, spurs thought and discourse, because I think that that's what is so lacking oftentimes, especially in the social media hot take blogosphere that we live in, that we inhabit these days. And Counterpunch, I think, is a good platform for us, for those who want to engage in that kind of discourse, especially who enjoy hearing from differing and critical perspectives. And uh, so if you agree that that is important, please consider consider supporting Counterpunch by getting a subscription to the magazine. We do still print ink on paper. It's a relic of the past and we do like it like vinyl records or uh, good taste in music, etc. <laughs> so I think that people should consider getting that subscription or even just making a small donation. That's greatly appreciated. You can uh, call the Counterpunch office, harass the staff there. They appreciate that. So anyway, uh, I want to turn to my guest today. Really happy to speak with him today. I really enjoy his book that we're going to talk a bit about uh, because I think that it puts a lot of critical issues that are facing uh, working people around the world that are facing us that we have to take on, puts it into, I think, a neat package, uh, one that is... I wouldn't say necessarily easily digestible, but certainly easier than some of the things that you come across, and that's really appreciated. It is Michael Yates. Michael is the editorial director of Monthly Review Press. The book I'm talking about, his brand new book, it's an absolute must read, uh, Can the Working Class Change the World? I think probably one of the most important questions we can ask. I highly recommend uh, Michael's other works, including Why Unions Matter and A Freedom Budget for All Americans, which he co-authored with Paul LeBlanc. Michael Yates, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Oh, it's glad glad to be here, Eric. I'm really happy to have you on, and I really want to thank you again for the book because it's so timely, it's so needed, especially considering, well, considering that I think that we have to be asking what exactly is the working class in the 21st century, in 2019. It's a term we all use on the left, but I think I want to start our conversation right there and ask you to help us understand what the working class is, what it isn't, and why it's important to define it. Well, first of all, let me say that I, I don't think you can give a hard and fast definition of the working class like in a formula. So one way to start out with would be to say, well, the working class includes everybody that works for wages. Uh, in the United States, a couple months ago, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, uh, there were 157 million employed people in the United States. That means that they're working for wages. But certainly, in terms of the book that I wrote, I talk about the working class, we would have to exclude corporate executives to get paid a wage. We would have to, cons we would have to exclude all of the flacks that work for them, their bean counters, accountants, lawyers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We would have to exclude them because their interests are so closely allied to the employing class, the capitalist class, uh, that they're not going to want to change the world in the way that I think the world uh, needs to be changed. Uh, I have some other ones which some people have disagreed with me about, but I don't see really how you can include police as part of the working class. Now, it's true that they're workers. It's true that they have labor unions, some that are quite successful in raising their wages and so on, uh, but their interests are allied with capital as well because 
if anything, you could say that one of the things that they do is to oppress the working class. As we've seen, for example, if you, if you look at especially the black part of the working class, uh, the police have been on a murder rampage in the black community. So I don't think the police are really members of the working class, despite the fact that I once saw a policeman carrying a sign in the middle of the Great Depression when the police were evicting um, unemployed people, people without means from their housing in Chicago. He had a sign that said, I will not shoot, I will not shoot workers. Well, OK, he shouldn't be a policeman anymore then. He should just become a worker. I'm not saying there aren't any good policemen because that wouldn't be true, but I don't think as a whole you could include policemen, prison guards, and, and that kind of labor as part of the, a part of the working class. Uh, that was a big issue in the uh, Democratic Socialists uh, of America. They had put a person on the board who it turned out had worked for the policemen's union in the state of Texas. Uh, there was such a hue and cry about it that he eventually resigned. So I would exclude those from the, from the working class. Uh, there's a category called non-supervisory workers, uh, about 70% of those 157 million, that's just for the United States, are non-supervisory workers. So if we subtracted out the supervisory workers, we'd have about 110 million. Then I would exclude the police and the prison guards and so on. But in addition, at any given time, you have people who uh, would look for work and are, have been members of the working class in the past or have looking for their first job. These are unemployed people. In February, there were over six million of these, so we'd have to include those. And at any given time, there are people who have stopped looking for work. They're discouraged workers, or they're marginally attached. Uh, if there was a lot of work available, they would probably seek it. Uh, there are maybe a couple of million of those. In the United States and in most countries, there's a lower age limit. So if you're younger than that, you, you're not counted as, you can't be employed whether you're working or not, or whether you're looking for work. Uh, and there's about a half a million child laborers uh, in the United States, so they'd have to be included as members of the working class. I joined the labor force when I was 12. Uh, I wasn't a member of the working class by the government's definition. I wasn't an employed person, but I was getting money and I was working. Uh, in addition to which, there are informal sector workers who are going to escape counts, and there are all kinds of informal sector workers. Uh, you, you could imagine, for example, that uh, there would be, let's say that you make money selling things on eBay, uh, uh, then, then that would, you, you get money from it, you're working, but you're probably not going to appear in any counts. And around the world, of course, as I'll mention in a minute, there are many, many informal sector workers. And people that are, don't have regular contracts with their employers, now, they get paid, but they're probably going to escape a lot of counts if they're formal counts. Then I also think that there's certain kind of labor, uh, I call it reproductive labor, because it's labor that doesn't get paid a wage, but that helps to maintain the system. Now, historically, this kind of labor was done by, is done by women, still is, and around the world in the United States, too. Now, of course, reproductive, of course, women have children. They provide the next uh, generation's working class. But women, and to some extent, uh, other unpaid family members, they teach uh, young people the uh, certain kinds of skills that are necessary to become members of the working class. This is unpaid labor, but if you think about the way that women might feel about that over time in a patriarchal society such as we have, they might have grievances strong enough that they might want to change the world too. Uh, they might ally themselves with their husbands if their husbands are wage laborers or vice versa. So I would include that as, uh, as, as part of the working class too. Now, a tricky one that doesn't come up in the United States so much because there aren't very many, 
And that includes what I, people that are peasants, that is small farmers making a living from their own tiny plots of land. Around the world, there might be as many as two billion peasants. Now, peasants have been engaged in revolts against capitalism for a long, long time, and they still are. In, in India, for example, there's a mass peasant movement in the countryside uh, where people have strong grievances against landowners, against employers of all different kinds. So if peasants are not literally members of the working class, if you define it sort of strictly as people that work for wages or could work for wages or associated with others who work for wages, peasants have to be considered at least strong allies of the working class. So the working class is a fairly significant number of people. Uh, I was looking at it around the world. Uh, the labor force, that is all those who are employed like more formally and who are looking for work, unemployed people, is about three and a half billion people. Then there are about a billion informal sector workers, and, and they're doing all kinds of different things, but they don't have formal labor contracts. Street vendors in Mexico City, pushcart vendors in New York City, rickshaw pullers in Calcutta, jitney drivers in Manila, garbage collectors in Bogota, roadside barbers in Durban, and so on. That's a quote from my book. Uh, there's about a billion of these people. They're surely members of the, they're surely members, uh, of the working class. So if you look at the world, the informal sector workers are really important. Child labor is really important around the world because there are hundreds of millions of ch child laborers uh, around the world. And as I mentioned, there are perhaps two billion uh, peasants. Among those informal sector workers, an interesting thing that I read was there are five million BD workers in India, B-I-D-I. -I, and these are people that work in their homes or in very small informal shops making cheap cigarettes and cigars. Just think of that. There are five million people like that. It's, uh, it's quite amazing, really. So, I mean, that's how I would look at the working class. You start out with a broad category, you subtract some from it, and you add others to it. Indeed, and that makes a lot of sense, especially when you're trying to grasp the, you know, the 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 immense size of what it is we're calling the global working class. And I guess that uh, use of the word global there really leads me to my my next question, and that is about how, in your view, the working class and maybe how we view the working class has changed in the last few decades, because I think it's undergone quite significant changes. Uh, one that we've discussed on this show, and I'd like to get your comment on is the sort of the, I guess you could call it the migration of industrial labor out of what we would call the global north or the first world, the early developed capitalist economies and into the global south, which has transformed globe, the global working class significantly. So uh, I guess at a broad level, how has the working class changed and how has it changed globally versus how we may be perceive it historically? Yeah, well, of course, there's always there's always changes in the working class. Uh, new industries develop, uh, new ways of producing things develop. Uh, certain skilled workers are de-skilled and no longer skilled workers. Other kinds of skilled workers might be necessary. So the working class always undergoes change just because the capitalist system always undergoes changes. Employers are always making changes in the way they do things, and so that affects the working class. One of the things that's happened is while the United States still has a good many manufacturing workers, uh, a lot of manufacturing has moved out of the country. Uh, either there's been direct foreign investment so that uh, companies from the global north, multinationals from the global north have subsidiaries in foreign countries, or they engage in what are called arm's length uh, relationships with suppliers in those other countries. 
So while we don't have the kind of manufacturing we used to, that is, there aren't nearly as many auto workers or steel workers in the United States as there used to be, these workers are in China, they're in India, they're in Indonesia and, and, and Vietnam and places like that. They're, doing, they're producing the kinds of material goods that used to be produced in the, in the, in the global north. So that's, that's a really, really big change. And one of the things that's really key about that change is this. I argue that capitalism is a system that's founded upon two fundamental things, and that is the exploitation of wage workers and the expropriation of land, bodies, and so on. And what you find in the, in the global south is that because labor is not, not as mobile as capital is, there's a much lower wage rate in the global south, and yet at the same time, with modern technology, the pr productivity of those workers is as high as or close to as high as it is of the workers in the global north. And so what that leads to is a situation in which the unit costs of production are much lower in the uh, global south than they are in the global north. And this allows for a kind of labor arbitrage, you might call it, where capital is always looking for the lowest unit cost so that its profits are the greatest. It finds these greatest profit margins, especially for manufacturing goods, but for services too, some services, uh, in the global south. And so you might say that in the global south, workers are super exploited. They might not even be paid enough to, to reproduce themselves over, over a, a, an ordinary lifetime. And these super profits find their way into the coffers of the companies in the global north. Uh, it used to be that they used to be able to, in a way, sort of co-opt their own workforces with some of these super profits paying them higher wages and so on. It used to be called like a labor aristocracy, but they find themselves in a position now where they don't have to do that. So the profits go to them, period, or some of them are drained off by the governments of rich countries uh, in taxation. And then they can be used to do what governments do, which is mainly to support capital in the rich countries and around the world. So that's kind of a main and important uh, change that, that has occurred. Uh, we sometimes hear about the precariat, that now work is precarious, especially for young people. But in capitalism, if you look at its history, work's always precarious. It's precarious for everybody, basically. Uh, there are some changes now with people who had, who, who aspired to, who were, are in occupations that once used to be uh, good, high-paying jobs, fairly secure, like the one I had when I was a college teacher for a long time. Uh, these are precarious now adjuncts do most of the teaching in the, in the United States. So it's not so much that um, work has suddenly become precarious, because it's always been precarious, it's just that new kinds of work have, be, have become precarious. The other thing I might mention in terms of change, and that is sometimes you hear that the future is for high-tech workers, that, that, you, that it's going to be a, a working class of skilled workers, but I don't think that's true. Because first of all, skilled workers have to be paid more money. Capital doesn't want to pay them more money. So it's always going to try to find ways to erode their skills and to supply uh, cheaper kinds of labor uh, in, their, in, in, their, in their place. And in the United States, for example, uh, if, you, if you look at employment in the United States in terms of high skills, uh, what you find is, is that uh, there are an awful lot of jobs that I don't think anybody would claim were high-skilled. Uh, for example, automobile workers, secretaries, administrative assistants and office support personnel, clerks, restaurant workers, security employees, custodians, medical workers. The chances are good that 
if if I asked you how many people did that, you would understate them. In 2015, uh, about 45% of, of all employment was in those categories that I just mentioned, 63 million people. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics does a, does a survey every few years or so in which they uh, look at what they think will be the most numerous jobs in, in the future. That is the ones that will have the highest numerical increases. Uh, for, the, for the 2016 to 2026 uh, estimates, the greatest job growth in terms of numbers, not percentages, were personal health aides, food preparation and serving, service worker, serving workers, healthcare support workers, and protective services. Those were the four largest, and these are also the lowest paid in the various occupational categories. So among the lowest paid, anyway. So, I mean, there are a lot of changes in the working class, but there's a lot of work that remains the same, but just done in, in different places right now. There are still millions of electronic workers in the, in the world. There are still millions of truck drivers and uh, logistics workers in the United States. There's still a lot of manufacturing workers uh, in, in the United States and around the world. There are still a lot of manufacturing workers in the world. They're just in different places now. One thing that I really appreciated about the book, and it, it kind of didn't hit me until after I was done with it, uh, the title, because the title asks a seemingly straightforward question, but I think that the more you think about it, the, the less straightforward it becomes, because on the one hand, you know, as again, the title, um, it asks the question, can the working class change the world? But in asking that question, there's really two questions implied there. One is, how has the working class changed the world to this point? And then the second one is, how might the working class change the world for the future to make a better world? And those two questions are somehow, in some senses, linked and in some senses not. So can you talk about uh, sort of the, I guess you could say, sort of the juxtaposition of these two questions embedded in the title. Well, first off, I think maybe an even more fundamental question is, well, why would workers want to change the world at all? How do they come to see that, that it's necessary to change the world? And I think there you have to think about how capitalism begins and what kind of a system it is. For the people that experience capitalism for the first time, and of course this occurs over long periods of time around the world because it hits first in, in the countries that were in what we used to call Western Europe and the United States and, and then some others, and it, it hits the rest of the world uh, a, a little bit later and, and more or less continuously to, up, to the, up to the present day. And capitalism provides a, su supplies a shock to the way in which people thought of themselves and the world around them. And I use the concept of the, of, the, of the two words, we and I. That is, for most of our time on Earth, uh, we, were, we, li we lived in, in more or less collective circumstances. For most of our time on Earth, we were gatherers and hunters. We lived in small bands, and we really had no conception of the I. But we thought of ourselves as we. Uh, if you look at, uh, from what we can tell, of, of the first societies, from the ones that are still left, uh, sometimes a lot of people people don't even have a word for I. They, they, it, does, it doesn't have any meaning to them. They think of themselves as a unity, and not only a unity with other human beings, but a unity with the larger world around them. They may not even see themselves as separate, really, from the animals that they hunt, or the trees and the and the and the food and the plants that they that they eat. Uh, s s even long after capitalism. 
if you look at Europe, uh, if you look at most of the world, land is held in common to a large extent. It's not private property. It's held and it's worked in common. Uh, the great uh, uh, historian Peter Linebaugh, who writes sometimes for a counterpunch, he talks about the commons around the world, commoning the idea of collective uh, production or producing as as part of a group. And what capitalism does is that it really tears asunder that we and and substitutes an I for it, an individualistic way of looking at the world. Everything that people thought of as normal before is torn apart. Uh, E.P. Thompson talks about this in his great book, The Making of the English Working Class, how the skilled workers of, of, uh, of feudal Europe, of pre-capitalist Europe, who often engaged in, in family-based production and were skilled in what they did, uh, they saw capitalism as like an assault. The factory whistle that that began when capitalists stopped uh, contracting out work to people's homes and forced them to come into centralized workplaces, often using orphans and and uh, and 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 women uh, to do the labor in those early factories. Uh, that factory whistle that blew that forced that brought the workers to work, penalizing them if they were late. That factory whistle was seen as an assault on a way of life. So capitalism strikes people as something very strange and unusual. That is, they're thought of as mere costs of production, as mere implements of production, and not as human beings. Uh, they're expected to compete with one another rather than to associate with one another. Uh, I remember when I was in school, the worst thing you could do was show somebody else how to do a problem in their homework. We're supposed to be on your own. Uh, if you work together, that's called cheating. You know, So the schools reinforce that too. But it has to be imposed upon people. It doesn't come naturally. And people objected to that and and rejected the whole idea of it. So you get these people, you know, the Luddites, the famous machine breakers that people decry now and say that they were backward and primitive and anti-progress. But if you think about what was happening to them, you could see why they did that. It was kind of a normal reaction to an assault on their very being, on their very way of thinking of themselves in the world. So there are reasons why people have revolted against this. I used to ask my students, do you think workers look in the mirror and say, oh, isn't it great to wake up in the morning? I'm a cost of production. I'm an implement. I'm an appendage to a machine. Uh, people don't like that. We're social animals. Uh, it's normal to be close to one another. It's normal to cooperate. And capitalism doesn't allow that. So people do react, and that's why people have reacted to capitalism and continue to do so. Now, as they have reacted uh, to what's going on in their lives, to their uh, exploitation at work, uh, to their alienation at work, to their to the fact that they don't have anything, they don't have any control over what they make. They're expected to compete with one another. You're even sort of alienated inside yourself. We say there's thank. We used to say when people worked nine worked Monday to Friday, we used to say thank God it's Friday, as if there's one part of us that worked all week, and then there's the real us that's not working anymore that can do what we want. Uh, so all of these alienations lead people to to sometimes. Uh, gather together and revolt against what's going on. And the key ways in which they've done that historically, there are lots of different ways, uh, is they form labor organizations, uh, labor unions, and they engage in political agitations because they quickly see that a labor union can't do everything that might need to be done and that there's a government out there that is a tool of their employers and it makes the laws and it has the police and you're going to have to fight against that too. 
And so political organizations are necessary. Now, through their labor unions and through their political organizations, as I point out, I think it's in chapter four in the book, the working class has brought about many, many changes. Uh, I, if you just look at it, I'm an, I was an economist by, by occupation, and economists have done studies on um, what causes workers' wages to be high or low. And it's always the case that workers who are unionized have, have uh, higher wages, they've got more and better benefits, they have more free time, they're more attuned to what the laws are, they're more, they're more, more willing to object to what employers do in terms of health and safety. Uh, they pressure the government to pass legislation that benefits them and all workers, uh, uh, health and safety laws, uh, et cetera, the right to unionize and that sort of thing. And as a consequence, uh, in the United States, union workers are better off than non-union workers. And in some cases, where workers have, in addition to having labor unions joined together to form political entities, like the great social democratic parties that formed in Europe uh, after the Second World War, uh, they've been able to achieve quite considerable gains. I guess the Scandinavian countries give us the best example, although even there, the, the social welfare state's beginning to wither away. But I have a thing in my book, I think, about the benefits that workers in Sweden have. Of course, it dwarfs those of those those in the United States. You know, parental leave for both parents, uh, job retraining, generous, un, generous un, unemployment benefits, long vacations, um, care for old age, universal health care, and, and that sort of thing. Now, those are really important changes. That, that's, that's changed the, the world, really, because it took a mass of people uh, who had very little, and it gave them something. That's a big change. It, it gave them a sense of themselves as powerful if they act collectively. That's a big change, a, a radical change in a way. Do you know that in the 1920s, steel workers in the United States worked a 24-hour turn, a 24-hour shift every two weeks? That is, they were working on a whole day, 24 hours. Uh, Coal miners couldn't uh, came home filthy, dirty, and had to wash in tubs. Now they they agitated to have uh, uh, be able to wash up at work, have showers at work. That was a big change. I mean, that's that was really something. I was born in a coal mining town. That's a big deal. Uh, so workers have brought about changes, big and small, that have changed their lives. And since they're the majority of people in the world, uh, to to a great extent, uh, at least in the in the advanced capitalist countries, uh, where there aren't very many peasants. Uh, those those are really important changes. So the working class has changed the world. It's changed it uh, quite dramatically. A world without unions, without labor-centered political parties, without social welfare programs, uh, it, it, without those is a much worse world than one with it. But at the same time, capitalism is an extraordinarily resilient system. And unless you attack capital's power directly and you keep at it, indefinitely, then capital is always ready to take back what you've won. And we saw in the United States in the 1970s when um, profit margins started to diminish, as the United States no, no longer dominated the global economy, as Japan had uh, recovered from the devastation of the Second World War, and the same thing was true of the countries in Western Europe, especially, especially West Germany. Uh, United States manufacturers started to face greater competition, profit margins started to fall. Uh, the big boost in demand, that uh, pent-up demand after the Second World War started to peter out. The Vietnam War was draining wages, draining uh, resources from the society and so on and so forth. Uh, 
profit margins started to fall and and uh, United States corporations started to feel a little bit of pain. And, and they I went think that, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't mean to cut you off, but I think that that is an excellent uh, point for us to just jump to a quick break because on the other side of the break, all of those factors that you're talking about in the 1970s, uh, a lot of these economic factors, which had in some senses been sort of out of sight, out of mind during the boom period following the war, they really sort of came crashing down quite hard. And then we entered into a new economic phase, both in terms of the U.S., but also globally. And I think I want to touch I want to touch on that when we come back from the break. Again, you're listening to my conversation with Michael Yates, the book, Can the Working Class Change the World? Get yourself a copy. Do it while we're at the break, and we will be right back. I'm here to laugh, laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. Help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. Now the same finna end in fisticuffs, but if you guys to go ahead, twist it up. That's your job finna make you piss and cuffs, make you have to hustle rent with your pistols up. Now if Uncle Sam bombers in his murder gang, we gon' rise out the ash like that bird of flame. Hoping you take action from the word I write, but if the police ask, you never heard my name. Five years old, eyelids half mass. Bedtime is 8 p.m. It's half past. Try to take me to bed, I make the mad dash. Scared in my sleep, I miss what had passed. Quarter century later, I'm still not sleeping. If I'm not involved, I feel I ain't breathing. If I can't change the world, I ain't leaving, baby. That's the same reason you should call me to see it. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor, and help make a revolution. I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor. And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor And maybe make a revolution I'm finna take shots and make a mark Not just take shots and make us mark That's how they make us marks We got dry to see the whole system break apart We finna drive to the lake and park Before we start, here's a club smelling like sweat, rum and perfume She letting out whoops cause they playing her tune If we could, we would stay here till it turn noon Till the sky we exist and resume it's Millennium 3, we call it a cup It's a world conversation, I'm hollering stuff Like we done wallet them up, and squallowing up Who's the culprit? Follow the buck, I'm just following up Cause like me, you got to be in the middle of it Unraveling the riddle of it And to do that, you gon' ride on the powers of be Well, I'm finna ride with you, take me home with you, little buck Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor And help the damn revolution come quicker Laugh, love, fucking drink liquor And help make a revolution I'm here to laugh, love, fucking drink liquor and help the damn revolution come quicker. Laugh, love, and drink liquor, and maybe make a revolution. And we're back here on Counterpunch Radio. I'm chatting with Michael Yates, and I, I sort of cut you off, Michael, before b- before the break um, because you were just about to get into exactly where I wanted this conversation to go in talking about some of the changes in the 1970s. And, you know, I mean, I, without needing to beat around the bush, I mean, the term that is on the lips of many people today in talking about how we've come to the point we're at in 2019, the word neoliberalism. And what neoliberalism 
symbolism really means because I think also uh, it has a historical meaning, but it's also kind of, in some senses, become overused to the point where the meaning may have been lost to some extent. So let me just ask you, what is neoliberalism? And then secondarily, if you want to return to the points you were making before the break about how the neoliberal system that we know today came about, why it came about, and what that has caused. Well, my uh, comrade at Monthly Review, John Foster, has a long article about the history and origins of neoliberalism, which I read was really interesting because it goes back a long, long way, long before the 1970s. Uh, and, you know, by such thinkers as uh, von Mises and Hayek, uh, the, the gurus of the, of the, of the right wing, uh, Milton Friedman and so on. Uh, but I, I like to think of neoliberalism as sort of capitalism's default position. That is, unless there are powers that countervail the powers of capital, then capital has a free hand to do what it wants. And what it wants is to make as much money as it can uh, without end, almost like an infinite expansion. It wants to, it wants to um, accumulate capital. It wants to draw as much profit out of the, out of the workday as it can, as much what I call surplus labor time that workers are compelled to give because if they don't, then they can't eat. Uh, to, to capital, and during the time that's that's surplus beyond the cost of production, beyond the cost of paying for the workers and paying for the machinery and equipment, etc., uh, that surplus labor time, and you work with the same intensity during those hours as you work during any other any other hour, and that surplus labor time is the root of it's the source of the profits that the capitalists make, and then they use those profits not all for their own consumption, but to make their capital grow locally, nationally globally and without without end in sight uh, auto workers labor 57 seconds at least about of every minute in the modern auto factories it used to be less than that every second counts time is money fractions of seconds uh, matter uh, matter in, uh, in in production and in addition to which land is expropriated by capital the land of peasants uh, nature itself is expropriated free of charge pretty much uh, the bodies of black people have been uh, have been expropriated taken stolen the, la- the bodies of women the, the time of women the labor of women has been expropriated so it's a system based upon exploitation in the workplace and a larger kind of of uh, of, of expropriation and that's going to go on and it's going to intensify unless there are countervailing powers. Now, in the 1970s, those countervailing powers weakened as capital went on the tack and as labor was unprepared for what was happening. Labor had in the United States, for example, engaged in a kind of what we might call labor management cooperation, working out deals with the employers that the employers could run their workplaces as they saw fit as long as the workers got regular wages and decent benefits and so on and so forth. Well. Capital rejected that deal in the 1970s, and labor unions weren't prepared. A whole bunch of think tanks began, the Heritage Foundation and all of those, American Enterprise Institute, the Business Roundtable, uh, to agitate ideologically against a unified working class and in favor of capitalism, in favor of the more naked exploitation and expropriation, which we see, uh, all, all, which we see all around. Sort of the epitome of it is the, and politically, is the Trump administration, isn't it? I mean, there's no amount of exploitation and expropriation these people won't engage in at the highest levels of, of, uh, of government. So the neoliberalism that we see in the 70s is, 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 is capitalism, basically, in its most naked guise. It's, uh, it's sort of untrammeled 
capitalism, capitalism without any countervailing, without any, any countervailing powers. Uh, we're now seeing almost as if capital and the state, capital and the government are like one entity now. It used to be there was a certain separation between uh, the economy and the state, and that doesn't seem to be any longer the case, or it's certainly weakening that split and that divide. And those are the fruits of, uh, of neoliberalism, this assault upon working people, this notion that everything has to be privatized, that the state has to sell off its, its, uh, its resources, that unions are antisocial entities, almost criminal ent entities, like they were considered in the early 18, 1800s as criminal conspiracies, uh, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of other things that, that, that go along with this. Uh, our, our resurgence of, uh, of racism, our resurgence of patriarchy, and so on and so forth, other fruits of, uh, of neoliberalism. But I sort of see neoliberalism as capitalism's default position. I guess that's the best way I could put it. Sometimes you, you, you hear people say that it's common parlance that uh, it's neoliberalism that we have to counter and not capitalism, but neoliberalism is simply a, uh, one of the incarnations of capitalism. Uh, it occurs from time to time. This is a modern, ver this is a, a modern version of it. Uh, even um, Naomi Klein in the Shock Doctrine, she talks about neoliberalism. Now, to some extent, you could read her as an anti-capitalist, and she seems to have moved more along those, along those lines. But it's almost as if, if, if you see, like, say, Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Award-winning uh, in economics, the economic prize uh, economist, he says this is not the way capitalism is supposed to be. Well, that's just nonsense. That's the way it is. That's the way it's always been. Uh, and he thinks somehow, like Krugman and the other liberals, that we could have a more humane capitalism. Or, you know, bless his heart, Robert Reich, who's you know, probably not a bad guy, Clinton's former Secretary of Labor. Uh, we have to take the high road, you know, he's always talking about. The high road, pay workers better wages, treat them better. Uh, that's just all nonsense. It's, it's the capitalist system that's the root of these problems. It's the capitalist system that generated neoliberalism. Uh, not the other. It's it's not a particularly perverse form of capitalism, and we would have, we would have uh, a good capitalism if neoliberalism could be eliminated. And that's not the case. And whatever good capitalism we had was due to the to the to the um, efforts, the collective efforts of the working class. That's what it was due to. If that working class is 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 weakened, if it's in disarray, then well, what do you expect is going to happen? Oh, that's exactly right. And all of those, all of those changes, all of those, you know, fruits of the agitation of labor. I mean, that is what we all kind of take for granted now. And that was all the product of, of struggle. And one of the terms that, that comes up again and again in, in, in reading through the history, and it comes up in your book numerous times as well, this term terrain of struggle. And I guess my question to you is, has the terrain of struggle changed because of neoliberalism? Uh, in other words, is, is the kind of struggle that that the working class would be putting up the tactical side of this, the strategic el uh, aspect of it, how the working class goes about organizing and uh, trying to attack and undermine capitalism. Has that changed because of neoliberalism? Because again, you're saying in a sense that neoliberalism is really just capitalism in its, in its raw form. So does that mean that the kind of organizing against neoliberalism and against capitalism is the same or is it different now in this era? Well, I, I think it's it's probably the same, and it's different. First of all, let's remember that capitalism has really become a much more global system than it was in the past. 
nation states. The United States is still, of course, powerful, and some of the bigger capitalist states are. But capitalist states probably don't have much, a lot of them don't have much autonomy. Capital can engage in capital strikes, have, uh, can speculate against currencies and so on and so forth to prevent governments from doing what the, what capital doesn't want done. Uh, but on the one hand, tactics, strategies and tactics for working class struggle are somewhat the same in the sense that strikes still can work. Uh, as we've seen with the strikes that have occurred in the United States recently among school teachers, healthcare workers, and, and some private sector workers as well. As Joe Burns has written a book about the strike, uh, he's a labor lawyer, I think, and he points out that you can't give up that, that power to shut down production, and you certainly can't. So there's still room for strikes. If you think about all the logistics workers, the people that transport goods and services, they could shut the whole system down. And we have so much... Uh, you know, like chains of production, global chains of production, so that if you shut down one part of them, the whole chain uh, breaks, and 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 capital can't achieve its circuit such that it is able to produce things and sell them uh, effectively. So, old tactics uh, still work, but I think that one of the things that maybe neoliberalism brings it to brings it to the to the forefront is that capitalism is very much a hegemonic system that is. It affects all aspects of life, and after all, we're not just workers. We're we're human beings. We have multifaceted lives. We we live in communities. We have uh, religious organizations. We have uh, uh, leisure organizations that we belong to. We have all kinds of activities, and we live in a larger world. There's an environment out there that's being um, not so gradually destroyed, but rapidly. Uh, r rapidly destroyed. Capitalism is global so that people all around the world have certain common uh, grievances. So it seems to me that one of the things that, that has to be realized is that the terrain of struggle is very broad. Capital engages on multiple terrains of struggle. There's no aspect of life that it's not interested in squeezing out some money. I, I used to use this picture for my students, I used to say, it's as if the capitalist is up on a mountaintop looking for profit opportunities that rise up like little peaks below the high mountain that the capitalist is on. And when one peak rises a little bit above the other, they say, well, let's go down there and exploit that. Is there one aspect of your life, birth, childcare, work life, death, your communities, there's no place that's sacrosanct. Capital will reach in to every single one of those, every aspect of our life and in every part of the world. There's no part of the world that escapes it. So the terrain of struggle is, first of all, the entire world. The terrain of struggle is in every workplace. The terrain of struggle is in every element of the political system. The terrain of struggle is over, is, is, is over housing. It's over schooling. It's over the media. It's not just over workplaces. So the way I would look, and this has always been true, of course, maybe neoliberalism has brought it more, more to the fore, fore, or maybe as the working class has achieved less power, or as if it appears that workers can't do the same kinds of things they used to do, like when they could shut down General Motors, which they still could, by the way, uh, maybe a little trickier, maybe you have to know more about how General Motors is organized to do that than used to be the case. Uh, so old old tactics are, are are still useful, but the terrain of struggle is is a broad is a broad terrain, and that's what has to be realized. It has to be waged on all fronts, all the time. But I would say, and and by the way, Eric, uh, 
you know, I can get rambling, so if you feel free to. I was kind of glad you did, you uh, you stopped me there for that little break because I don't want to. No, no, no. I don't want to ramble no, on and it's, on. It's 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 no problem. Sometimes a rambling man is what's needed uh, in these days. But um, I I do want to ask you about the. What's the word I should use here? Uh, to to use it in the in Walter Lippmann's definition of the word stereotype, that is to say, as he defined it as the image we see in our mind's eye, and the stereotype of the quote unquote working class, I think, is instructive about. Uh, particularly in in the United States, although this is perhaps true elsewhere as well, and certainly in in European countries, it's true. Uh, the that whiteness really plays a part in how one views what it means to be working class. Because I think that oftentimes, especially around the 2016 election, for instance, you saw this narrative of the, the quote-unquote working class that had kind of flocked over to Donald Trump's side, and you always got this image of these kind of white male kind of socially reactionary type worker. And that's somehow this image of, a, of the working class. But the reality is the working class is not really that. The majority of the working class in the United States looks nothing like that, has no experiences in common with, with that sort of person, and in fact, in, in many ways, I think changes the way that we have to think about what a worker and working class looks like in the U.S. and elsewhere. Well, I, I'm glad you said that because when we're talking about terrains of struggle, the issues of race, gender, the environment... In the, the the relationship between the countries of the global north and the global south these are really key issues around the world of course the working class isn't white at all uh, if you just look at skin color it's it's not 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 a bit we're a minority if, if I'm white and you're white by definition by the way we think of people uh, we're we're a minority and the, so globally uh, the working class is made up of people of keep people of color mainly and the working class is uh, in many places uh, uh, it's made up of increasing uh, numbers and fractions of, of women as well. So you're absolutely right. Uh, I'm, I mean, to some extent, and of course, would I rather say Bernie Sanders be president than Donald Trump? Well, yes, of course I would. Uh, that's, that's a no-brainer. But Bernie, and of course you saw that, you see that with, uh, with Biden. I mean, he was asked in Iowa why kids in Iowa did better in school than kids in D.C. And his answer was basically because there were more whites in Iowa than there were in D.C. And Bernie would sometimes talk like in West Virginia and places like that as if the working class was white, uh, as opposed to, to places where the working class is not white, where it's black, where it's, where it's uh, Mexican, where it's whatever. So I think that issue of race is really critical. And if you certainly, if you look at the Western, quote, Western world, if you look at the United States, but the other countries in the West too, England, for example, uh, the issue of race is a predominantly important issue. You could say, for example, that capitalism is built on a foundation of slavery. Certainly it's true in the United States. The uh, exploitation of, of uh, black bodies in the slave South Fueled the, helped to fuel the Industrial Revolution, the, the, the manufacturing of cotton and other textiles and so on and so forth, uh, is, is fueled by slavery. Uh, slavery helps to fuel the British uh, Industrial Revolution as well. So, so, so race is a critically important issue. 
it's it's important along all kinds of dimensions. What did W. B. Du Bois say that that color line is the most important element in thinking about the United States? And I really do believe that's true. Sometimes you hear people say, and and even some people who 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 are uh, African African American. Uh, trying to think of that one fellow's name. I'm not, I'm not going to remember his name now. But they're sort of like they take this class first view that it's it, we have to look for things that are in, that that benefit all workers so that we're not divisive by race. We're not divisive by gender, let's say. We're not divisive by immigrant, non-immigrant uh, in, in the United States and, and uh, in other parts of, of the world as well. And, and that seems to me to be a nonsensical way to look at things. It seems to me that working class organizations have to overcome those divisions within themselves as they organize, as they build, and as they develop. Because otherwise, there cannot be a working class that changes the world if it's, uni if it's not united uh, around those, di those divisions, if those divisions aren't overcome or if we don't fight to, to overcome them. Um, men and women, black and white, immigrant, non-immigrant, Global North, Global South, those all have to be overcome. It's, it's a daunting task, believe me, uh, as I'm sure you you know as well. I mean, you Indeed, think and, No, I'm sorry. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and one of the things that is really, I think, important, especially for people who grew up uh, not understanding oppression in the way that a person of color or uh, a woman might, uh, it's important for us to also recognize that, you know, when we talk about things like neoliberalism and the impacts of NAFTA and free trade and all of these things, the gutting of the of the working class and so forth, that these kinds of experiences, that these are not unique and, and, and not uniquely tragic, that this is in fact uh, the, the very nature of what it means to be an exploited worker. And I think that oftentimes you find that uh, these racial divides and, and, and other types of divides that we're talking about, they, they come from an inability to sort of universalize universalize the experience. And I think that that's one of the things that's most attractive about socialism, about, you know, Marx and Marxist theory and, and in general is this internationalist idea, the, the, the idea that we're not supposed to be divided in that way, that we're supposed to be united in struggle across racial lines, but also across national lines and national borders and so forth. And I think that that internationalist perspective is is really critical. And, and although it's being discussed in various forms, I think often it gets lost in these kind of discussions well I think that's I think that's true uh, the first uh, reviews of my book were done in India and Bangladesh believe it or not and the first translation of the book was done uh, into Hindi uh, I don't know if there's been other translations or not but that's one that I that I do know about and I've got a lot of Facebook friends for example and friends through monthly review uh, who live in, in, in South Asia and India and Pax, India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and so on and so forth. And they connect to what you're saying uh, right away. And Month Review, for example, has always taken a global perspective. And I think that's one of the big things. That's missing and the race issue is missing to a large extent too. Even among uh, the so-called, well, they call themselves democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders did, and the Democratic Socialists of America has grown pretty rapidly and so on and so forth in, in the United States. But it often sometimes seems to me to gloss over issues of, of race and, and gender. And it certainly glosses over global issues to, to a large extent. Uh, if, you, if you look at the take on things by the Democratic Socialists it's, uh, in the United States, it's, it's sort of United States-centric, uh, best, I, best I can tell. 
you know, you, you see about a Green New Deal and you think to yourself, well, how's the Green New Deal going to be brought to the rest of the world? And it's as if, well, I guess that'll happen, but I, I, I don't see it. I don't see that sort of global, global sense of the world like we're citizens of the world uh, as opposed to citizens of the United States. Uh, no, it's I, I haven't seen it either, although I will say, and I'm, I'm not, you know, going to speak for or against any organization necessarily, but I will say that uh, in the brief uh, interactions I had, there was a there was a great deal of openness to it. What was lacking was a forceful leadership on issues of imperialism and war and things of that nature. It's just it wasn't being articulated by any of the people in leadership, at least not that I saw. And again, we're, I'm talking a very, very, very limited scope and in one specific place, but uh, I haven't seen that internationally, and that kind of really is, or rather I haven't seen that international perspective really articulated by DSA or much of any of the organizations that, that I've come into contact with. And part of the problem, and this really leads to this this other question for you, Michael, part of the problem is that there, I think many of these organizations that don't see that international perspective don't understand that neoliberalism and the global the globalization of the economy has created a situation in which many of the struggles on very... In totally different parts of the world are nearly identical. For instance, for instance, you mentioned already, Michael, some of the teacher strikes that we've had in the United States in places like Oakland, but also in very deeply conservative states like in Arizona and in West Virginia and elsewhere. And if you look at their demands and their grievances, and you compare those demands and those grievances to, uh, for instance, um, the massive teacher strike ongoing in Poland at this very moment. Yeah, many, so. of, many of them are the same. Oftentimes, oftentimes the it's not just only about wages, but it's also about respect. It's about position in, in the society. It's about uh, fake news. It's about right-wing propaganda into the schools. It's about a lot of the same issues. And so I want to just get your take on the internationalization of a lot of the problems and the struggles of working people. Well, I, th I think there are two th points to be made. You're, you're right. A lot of the struggles are similar. For example, you read that there's epidemic uh, suicides among French farmers and, and, and English farmers, and but there are also epidemic suicides among farmers in India, all around the world. And I was reading in the United States, like with these recent floods and so on. I mean, farmers are have, they have to get counseling. They're 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 depressed or suicidal. If people can't if people can't live producing the food that we need, that's a sorry state of affairs. So so you're right; those problems are are similar. It's certainly going to be true that uh, workers in the in the in the manufacturing plants in Mexico have some of the same problems as workers in the manufacturing plants in Vietnam and in the United States and all around all around the world. Those are those are common problems, and we should realize that. And especially those of us in the global north, we have an obligation to support those struggles not only here but in the rest of the world, uh, because it's our countries. Uh, it's the capital in our countries that has engaged in that super exploitation and expropriation of the peoples of, and their lands and resources in those countries. So we have a special obligation along those lines. So, so you're absolutely right. Uh, this, this, the, the, the plights and the struggles are, are very similar. But at the same time, one of the difficulties is, is that the life circumstances in the rich countries are to a large extent, leaps and bounds better than the life circumstances of many people in the poor countries. And 
And so if you ask yourself, well, what is a wage worker in Pakistan where wages are so much lower than the United States on average have to do – what connection could a worker who, who had an average wage in the United States uh, make with that worker, much less the lowest paid worker in Pakistan and the highest paid wage worker in the United States? What, or even in the United States, what would, what, would, what would a poorly paid worker in the United States have in common with a very highly paid worker in the United States? That's a difficult question. Uh, to answer. I mean, I think solidarities are possible, but they have to be forged consciously and with some humility on the part of those who are better off. Uh, and in addition to which, I think Peter Leinbaugh makes a good point when he's talking about commons. He said commoning, the idea that work should, that we should live and work collectively, that has to be taught every generation. And so one of the things that I thought was really important that I, that I mentioned in the last chapter of my book was is that every entity that seeks progressive or radical change that really wants to change the world, which basically means to defeat capital in all of its guises and in all of its uh, terrains and try to build some some non-capitalist, more collective, more socialistic society, is education. You'd be surprised. I was a labor educator for more than 30 years, and I talked working people all around the United States in every venue imaginable, smoky union halls, hotel rooms, motel rooms, uh, public facilities of one kind or another, colleges, community colleges, high schools, you name it. Uh, but you'd be surprised uh, how many times working people would say, you're really opening our eyes. And I used to think, well, why is your union opening your eyes? Because these are, for the most part, union workers. And it's amazing that very few unions have any kind of education for their members. So that a new member would come in and not know anything about the history of the union, not know anything about the history of the working class, not know anything about the history of working class struggles. That's quite amazing. It was really not only not only that they will actively provide disinformation and actively uh, endorse reactionary politics in in many cases. That was certainly my experience with the United Federation of Teachers in New York City, which has a deeply reactionary history of opposing a lot of progressive uh, policies and so forth. I remember in two thousand nine, we desperately tried to get a uh, we tried to get a motion passed at the delegate assembly to uh, stand in opposition to Obama and Hillary coup in Honduras, and that was lambasted by many of the very reactionary right-wing workers in that union, and I know that to be true in a number of other unions. Well, sure. If you read Greg Shotwell's Auto Workers Under the Gun, UAW, sort of an iconic liberal and once sort of radical union, uh, I mean to say the corruption and disdain for the rank and file in that union is, is, is just quite remarkable. One time I was teaching a group of workers in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, where I worked, and um, they were working in this air conditioning plant in this small town near Johnstown. And their union had made concessions in the middle of a contract that really weren't necessary to the employer without talking to the rank and file. So I had a bunch of students in the class who were from that local. And I knew some of them because they'd taken college classes with me. And they came to class with a tape recorder. The course was in collective bargaining, believe it or not. And they taped every class, and they studied it, and they asked me a lot of questions, and we talked and so on. And they went back, and they ran a new slate of officers. They took over their union. They got back to concessions and so on and so forth. But you could see that they were opposed by their very union leadership. One of the things that I often thought was is that uh, just like, uh, just like say, Somoza, the former dictator of Nicaragua, said he didn't want men, he wanted oxen. You know, he didn't want people that could think. He, did, he wanted people that would slave away. 
And sometimes I think union leaders are afraid of an educated rank and file because then they're going to lose their perks and their 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 positions of privilege and power. But it was interesting when Occupy Wall Street was going on and they started like these sort of spontaneous kinds of classrooms and and uh, seminars and things like that in the streets. And, and I thought that was a really good idea, that kind of education that's necessary and it has to be ongoing in every organization. And of course, one of the focuses of that education has to be on these key issues of racism, feminism, racism, patriarchy, and imperialism. I think those are three critical things that we all could use some uh, education on. I mean, you, if you live in the belly of the beast, so to speak, if you live in a country where you're constantly told that this is the greatest country in the world and everybody else in the world is inferior, it takes with a lot of people, let's face it. You don't learn much in school about these things, that's for that's for darn sure. So it, it, the organizations that are formed by people to attack capital on whatever terrain, they need to have uh, educational entities that are ongoing so that people are constantly engaging in a give and take. And I don't mean education where you just lecture to people or you, you, talk, you talk above them as an expert, but with them so that they learn from you and you learn from them. And that's necessary everywhere. You know, I was reading that the uh, we did a book on the Naxalite movement in India. It's a movement, a radical movement by, led by Maoists in, uh, in the Indian countryside. And in villages where people had lands had been taken, they began to revolt and take the land back. And of course, they were repressed brutally by the government. But one of the things that the that the communist uh, uh, leadership of, of, of these movements uh, did was it uh, right away it engaged in startup schools education, the landless workers movement in Brazil. Uh, they have a, they have a, a, a saying, um, what the heck is it? Oh, resist, occupy, produce. They resist, they occupy, they produce. But as part of the occupation and as part of the production is schooling, education. Uh, there's that movement in Jackson, Mississippi, Cooperation uh, Jackson, which I talk about in the book. And that's part of their movement, education, radical education critical education, thinking about larger issues. Uh, that's what's really needed. I mean, how are you going to oppose the system unless you know exactly how it operates, unless you know what makes it function, unless you know how resilient it is, unless you finally learn the lesson that humanity is never going to be liberated unless this system comes to an end by any means necessary, as, uh, as uh, Malcolm X said, I believe. And I think... I think that's I think that's that's really true. That the way you struggle varies from place to place. Uh, the tactics you use vary from time to time and from place to place. But your goal has to be the supersession of this particular system. And we might not know exactly what's going to happen in the future. I mean, I have some ideas in the, in the last chapter as the as the kind of principles we ought to be fighting to establish in any new society. Uh, Workers control their own workplaces. Communities control their own communities. Uh, agriculture has to be revolutionized and be become more more localized and smaller in scale, and so on and so forth. I mean, there are certain things that are seem to me to be obvious that would have to be part of any good society. Uh, we have to sort of reinvent what we think of as the good life, uh, it, one that's not based upon consumption consumption, consumption, and more and more and more production. It can't be done because the world won't survive, or the earth won't survive. So education is important, very important in, in all of these struggles. 
I think that's very well said and a very hopeful note as somebody who spent some time in education. I, I couldn't agree more. It's such a valuable resource, both uh, in terms of, you know, bettering individuals, but also in terms of political political progress. I think it's really key. Uh, and I, I really do want to thank you for this book as well, because it really does, as I said at the opening of our conversation, it really does put a lot of these critical questions, which are pretty heady in some ways, into, I think, pretty clear focus. So again, I recommend everyone get yourselves a copy of the book, Can the Working Class Change the World by Michael Yates. This is from Monthly Review Press. It's available wherever you get your books. Michael Yates, thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio and speaking with me today. Oh, you're very welcome, Eric. I'm very, uh, very happy, very happy to do it. I love Counterpunch. I love Jeffrey St. Clair. I sometimes had disagreements with Alex Coburn, but we got along pretty well, too. <laughs> <laughs> you and you and everyone else who ever met him. So <laughs> anyway, thank you again, Michael, for coming on the show. Listeners, thank you as always. And we will chat again real soon.